Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Act 2. The Reckoning. Chapter 8. The Invaders and the Independents. In which Facebook and Google arrive, and old media find they can't live with them, can't live without them. Online advertising becomes automated and wipes out an industry sector. Internet startups make a mozza for a little while. And new models to fund journalism are created. Australia's communications minister is in Canberra, attempting to persuade the Senate Estimates Committee hearing that the internet is not safe in the hands of the Silicon Valley giants. In May 2010, this is not a particularly fashionable view. First, Stephen Conroy turns to Google's Street View cars, which are on a mission to photograph and map every street in the world. It has just been revealed that the cars have been equipped with antennas to sniff out every unsecured Wi-Fi network they come across and download data on what websites the householders have been visiting. Google had initially denied it, but owned up after Germany's regulator called for a data audit. The search giant said it had somehow been happening by mistake. Conroy tells the hearing. I do not think it was somehow. I think they set out to collect it. This has been worldwide. Google takes the view that they can do anything they want. It is possible that this has been the largest privacy breach in history across Western democracies. After being caught out by European privacy commissioners, Google has admitted that their street view cars, the ones that drive down your street and photograph your house without your permission so that they can make it available worldwide for use in their street view product, has also been collecting information from people using Wi-Fi connections. That is, your personal data, including, potentially, emails. This is a company that says, do no evil, but tries to pretend that it is not motivated by profit and that it knows best, and you can trust us when it comes to privacy. Unfortunately, there are no safeguards. And what about Facebook? Senator Dana Wortley asks her Labour colleague. Facebook has also shown a complete disregard for users' privacy recently, Conroy tells her. If you are not aware, Facebook, I understand, was developed by Harvard University student Mark Zuckerberg, 
who after breaking up with his girlfriend, developed a website of all the photographs from the Harvard yearbook so that he and his mates could rank the girls according to their looks. An auspicious start for Facebook. Facebook has been rolling out changes to his privacy laws over recent months. And as one blogger recently put it, Facebook has gone rogue. Facebook used to be a place to share photos and thoughts with friends and family, a useful way to keep in touch. Then Facebook realised it owned the network and decided to turn your profile into your identity online, figuring rightly that there is money and power in being the place where people define themselves. But Conroy had his own credibility problem among the people who would otherwise be most sympathetic to his message. For the last couple of years, he's been trying to implement a national internet filter to censor Australia's access to the web. This has united a coalition of digital campaigners who fear any filter would slow down access to Australia's already creaking internet. Despite championing a fibre-to-the-home NBN, Conroy has started to be seen as a knee-jerk anti-tech politician. The fake Stephen Conroy Twitter account, written by technologist Leslie Nasser, is getting a lot of laughs at his expense. Conroy's concerns about Google and Facebook seem to be yet another vain attempt to put the genie back in the bottle. He asks his Labour colleague a rhetorical question. So what would you prefer, Senator Wortley? A corporate giant who is answerable to no one and motivated solely by profit, making the rules on the internet? Or a democratically elected government with all the checks and balances in place? The next day, I post a poll on Umbrella, asking the question, who do you want to look after the internet? A, a corporate giant who is answerable to no one and motivated solely by profit, making the rules on the internet? Or B, Stephen Conroy. A total of 398 readers take part. 93% of them choose option A. Four months earlier, the duopolic decade. By 2010, the chess pieces were on the board. Data company Nielsen reckoned that 17.8 million people were online in Australia, with 14.6 million of them active in any given month. Thanks to its fast-growing video site YouTube and email service Gmail, along with its dominant search platform, Google's top, with 12.7 million users per month. And Microsoft was a strong second on 11.4 million users, mainly driven by its free Hotmail email service, funneling visitors through to the 9MSN homepage. Only one other platform, Facebook, with 9.1 million users, was reaching more than half of online Australians. Australia's big two traditional publishers were in the top 10, but only just. News Corp was sixth, reaching 6.9 million Australians per month, while Fairfax Media was 10th, with 5.8 million visitors. Australia, Nielsen's data suggested, had fallen in love with social media. In January 2010, the company estimated that Australians were the world's most prolific users of social media, averaging 6 hours and 52 minutes per month, ahead of the US's 6 hours and 9 minutes, and the UK's 6 hours and 8 minutes. Over the course of the decade, this number would multiply tenfold. 
This helped explain why Facebook opened an office early in Sydney. When the company sent out its US Western Region sales director, Paul Barad, to become regional VP for Australia and New Zealand in May 2009, it was only the third Facebook office outside of North America. Mike Murphy, the company's VP of Global Sales, explained the rationale for heading down under. With its strong user growth and sophisticated digital marketing community, we expect Australia to play a significant role in our global sales strategy. Facebook would become the biggest driver of the growth in the number of hours sucked into scrolling. Its global revenues would rise astonishingly, from $2 billion per year in 2010 to $86 billion per year in 2020. Over the same period, Google would grow from $29.3 billion per year to $171.7 billion. At the start of the decade, the two companies were already on the way to dominating the internet. By the end, they would own the plumbing too. The real engine behind Facebook's growth was Newsfeed, which it had launched back in September 2006. This move changed the entire nature of the site and helped kill off social media rivals MySpace, which was owned by News Corp. Previously, Facebook's structure had been much like MySpace, with a static profile and visitors needing to seek out their friends' pages to find out what they'd been up to. Newsfeed created a stream, telling its users what their friends had been doing. It wasn't just what people chose to share as updates about their day or state of mind, but little things like who they'd befriended on the platform, or what groups they had joined. It meant that every Facebook user was seeing a combination of information that was automatically curated uniquely for them. This had never been done before. And once the 2006 newsfeed launch had started to propel user growth, Facebook had opened up to commercialization the following year. Brand pages allowed marketers to create a home for their brands on Facebook, and they would be encouraged to buy ads to promote that page. Brands raced to sign up. It looked like a way of talking to customers at almost no cost. It was worth paying for ads to get people to like the brand page, because once they were a follower, messages from the brand would appear organically in the user's newsfeed. Not only was it smart business, but Facebook used clever technology to get users clicking on those acquisition ads. They'd be shown messages telling them that friends had liked the page. It didn't mention that it could have been months ago. At first glance, it looked much like any other recent interaction. In behavioural economics terms, it offered social proof, encouraging that user to like a page too. Brands began to work out that the more their audience interacted with a message, the more that Facebook's always-evolving algorithm would push it harder in other followers' news feeds. The like button followed in 2009. Suddenly, every other brand post was along the lines of TGI Friday, like if you agree. In March 2010, digital strategist Julian Cole published one of the first pieces of analysis of how Australian brands were making use of Facebook as a marketing platform. Pringles Australia had invested an estimated $500,000 in what was believed to be the largest Australian ad spend on Facebook that year, gaining the biggest local following with 260,650 fans. 
Coca-Cola was a distant second with 132,000 fans. KFC was third with 96,300. Soon though, brands were starting to wonder whether they had been taken advantage of. They had spent that money on building up followers of their pages, but now there were so many rival brands piling in, their messages were not appearing in users' news feeds. The typical organic reach of a brand's post fell from appearing in up to 50% of their fans' timelines to less than 10%. Instead, Facebook was asking for more money, encouraging brands to pay to promote their messages into the newsfeed of those fans they had paid to acquire in the first place. As digital specialist Justin Cabani put it in 2013, no one can be upset with a business for trying to make money, especially one with millions of shareholders and a billion customers who've never paid a cent. But many are calling this the Facebook double dip. Charge us once to get fans, then again to converse with them. And Facebook's tendrils had begun to reach deeper into the publishing ecosystem. Facebook Connect became the way that many users logged into other sites across the web. Easier than remembering a password, Facebook became a de facto identity system. And that meant that Facebook was able to follow its users outside of its own platform. At the end of 2009, the company introduced a share button that publishers could put on their own sites. Once clicked, it would send a link to the content into the news feeds of the reader's friends. The button even included a count of how many times an article had been shared. Brands could also run display ads. And even from the beginning, Facebook was an advertising environment more tempting to marketers than the rest of the web. It offered the ability to target those ads by demographic or by interest. And the more Facebook followed its audience around the web, the more it knew. For marketers, advertising with Facebook was a bargain because they could target a customer more precisely than had ever been possible with mass media. Why buy an ad on the homepage of an old fangled news publisher, or in a newspaper come to that, when you could reach exactly the target group for your media plan? You could even select a single person to target an advertising message to. In 2012, audience tracking service Comscore estimated that Facebook was publishing 23% of all the display ads running in Australia. The traditional publishers were well behind. Fairfax was getting 2.2% and News Corp 1.4%. In early 2012, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg pivoted Facebook's priorities from desktop to mobile to ride the smartphone wave. He declared that every new development for the site should be designed for mobile first and desktop second. The type of easy-to-consume content that worked on mobile was prioritised in the Facebook algorithm. That year, the company snapped up image-sharing service Instagram. The $1 billion that Facebook paid looked like a lot at the time, but it kept the fast-growing social site out of the hands of any potential competitor, particularly Twitter. Later, Facebook would snap up messaging app WhatsApp in a deal valued at $16 billion. Facebook just kept growing. In October 2012, Zuckerberg announced in a post that it had reached 1 billion active users globally. Helping a billion people connect is amazing, humbling, and by far the thing I am most proud of in my life, he wrote. 
Whatever Facebook was doing within its logged-in walled garden, Google was seeking to stay ahead of. Google had made its name, and its first fortune, through search. Google's AdWords advertising platform had been one of the moments of commercialisation genius on the web. Advertisers were able to bid against keywords. The most lucrative bid on the keyword would appear alongside the organic search results. Somebody searching for, for instance, new car, would be of keen interest to all of the automotive companies. Their bids and budgets would be locked into the system, ready for when the customer made their search. The principle would be expanded by Google via its AdSense program. Publishers would be able to put text ads on their sites. The ads would be contextual, relevant to the text of the page itself. Google would handle the technology and take the advertiser's money, of which publishers would get a slice. The rate would be much lower than selling ads directly, but for publishers who didn't have the scale to pay salespeople, it looked like free money. Old faces and new models. The decade of disruption was by no means all bad for Australia's media diversity. While the old, monolithic publishing model was under threat, it was also a fascinating time in which publishers experimented with new business models, some of which worked and many of which did not. They came from all directions, independents, international players and the existing Australian media companies trying new things. Some tried it in print, but far more did it online. Yet even with the clamour of new voices, News Corp and Fairfax media titles would still dominate the local landscape. Some of the news independents had arrived early at the party. Schwartz Media had launched Quarterly Essay in print in 2001, offering a single 25,000-word think piece, usually around politics. It relied on a pay model of $19.95 per edition, which went up as the decade progressed. Schwartz Media then began to launch new publications of ever-increasing frequency. The monthly magazine followed in 2005, with features focused on the arts, politics and society. Then in 2014 came The Saturday Paper, a weekly publication offering news and pointed political analysis. Later there would be a daily podcast called 7am. Another early independent arrival in the space was Crikey. Started in 2000 by trouble chaser Stephen Main, it had been sold to former News Limited and Fairfax Media editor Eric Beecher's Private Media in 2005. The key component of a Crikey subscription was its lunchtime email newsletter, offering a progressive perspective on the day in politics and business. Crikey's subscription revenue was supplemented with a modest stream of advertising. In 2007, Beecher had been given the special Walkley Award for journalistic leadership and had criticised Australia's concentrated media ownership, telling the audience, I've got nothing against those big moguls, I just think there should be more media. As time went on, Beecher would become more critical of Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. Beecher's proprietorship saw him putting his money where his mouth was in driving media diversity. Thanks to selling Melbourne Weekly in 2003 and his share of Business Spectator in 2012, Beecher was able to subsidise Crikey in the years it was unprofitable. Private media was also discreetly supported by media philanthropists, including JB Fairfax and Cameron O'Reilly, 
son of APN founder Tony O'Reilly. One thing that both Crikey and the Schwartz Media Stable had in common was asking readers to pay for their content. In the publishing space, the obvious benefits of subscription models, such as Crikey had, was a predictable source of revenue. This relied on investing in staff to manage and market subscriptions, though, which carried a cost. And of course, there also needed to be enough readers willing to pay. Another digital option was to offer free content for all and hope to build a big enough audience to attract sufficient advertising to make a profit. As advertising rates fell throughout the decade, this would become ever harder. The biggest difference for the new wave of publishing was that there would no longer be a single simple formula. Publishers would need to figure out who their audience was and who would pay for the content, if not the advertisers. The answer to that would be different for every publisher, and it would very much depend on the audience. Some were more monetizable than others, depending whether they were in the demographics that advertisers particularly wanted to speak to. This decade was also when journalists developed new techniques in writing for the web and began to figure out how to use analytics in their own editing choices. One of the prices to pay for publishing for the web was that the clever, esoteric headlines seen in newspapers and magazines were often bad for search engine optimization. If there was a word or name that an online user might be entering in a search field to find an article, it needed to be in the headline, which meant clever headlines that did not have the keyword were no good anymore. Search traffic began to matter a lot, and SEO was the name of the game. And social referral, traffic that could be brought in through platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and in a professional context, LinkedIn, became even more important than SEO. Early in the decade, Facebook overtook Twitter as the biggest source of traffic. For publishers, the trick was not simply to post articles to their Facebook page and hope for followers to click on it, but to create the type of content that people would want to share with their friends. The Facebook algorithm became adept at identifying the posts driving comments, sharing and time spent on the page. Publishers began to figure out how to write articles that would go viral. The larger ones applied scientific rigour, experimenting with multiple headlines and sticking with the version driving most clicks. Memes, listicles and emojis became a part of the digital journalism armoury. Publishing brands were soon fully on board the Facebook train. It became the best place for news publishers to share content and drive clicks through to their own sites. When promoted according to the new rules of the game, this sort of constantly changing content was attractive to the Facebook algorithm. A whole new editorial discipline grew alongside journalism, working out which content would go viral. Virality depended on two factors, content somebody would be interested enough to click on, and even more importantly, share. Online editors also began to develop a new skill set, data analytics, Using software like Chartbeat and the Google Analytics real-time function, they would immediately know how every article on the homepage was performing. This meant articles that were not generating clicks could quickly be downgraded or have the headline rewritten. Another skill set, separate to SEO, was the ability to write a headline intriguing enough to win a click from the reader. Often, the content did not match the promise of the headline. The dismissive term clickbait took off from 2014.
new tricks. Many of the new mainstream arrivals would try to build a business using an advertising-supported model. Almost all of those giving it a go in the digital space had come up through the traditional media. Mia Friedman was among the early entrants. A star of the magazine world, she'd become editor of ACP magazine's Cosmopolitan at the age of 24, eventually becoming editor-in-chief of Cosmo, Clio and Dolly, before concluding that magazines were in structural decline. My love affair with magazines was winding up, she would later write in her first memoir, Mamma Mia. I had a new media crush, the internet. It appealed to my impatience, my need for speed. How could magazines for young women possibly hope to compete as entertainment or sources of information when they were published monthly? It may as well be annually. We're all measuring our lives in increments of hours and minutes and text messages, not months. Mags felt frustratingly slow. Friedman also recognised the threat to the magazine business model. How could any kind of sex content stay relevant, let alone titillating, when with two clicks you could be looking at a knicker-free Britney Spears or reading unlimited amounts of salacious and educational material for free? Cosmo and Clio couldn't hope to compete, and I felt that a circulation dive was inevitable. She had started her website, which went by the same name as a memoir, Mamma Mia, in 2007, when her career went off track, following an unhappy few months at nine, helping launch short-lived daytime female panel show, The Catch-Up. Like several new publishing ventures at the time, Mamma Mia began as a straightforward blog. The format appealed to journalists because they could simply start writing. WordPress was the most prominent publishing platform. It was a simple matter of selecting a template, adding the modules that suited, things like a most popular articles box or a blog roll to link to other similar sites, for instance, and beginning to publish. The challenge for would-be publishers was how to turn an audience into something commercially viable. Somebody had to look after the commercial side while the journal created the content. In Freeman's case, that person was her husband, Jason Levine, who helped transform Mamma Mia from a blog into a business after 18 months of audience growth. In her third memoir, Work, Strife, Balance, Friedman wrote, Our areas of responsibility split naturally. I continued producing the content while he took over the tech side, the financials, as well as the advertising and the strategy. Another magazine journalist to break through at the same time was Sarah Wilson. She had gone from newspapers to magazines, including Cosmopolitan, under Mia Friedman's editorship, before developing a portfolio career, writing newspaper columns, blogging, and briefly as the underutilised presenter for the first season of Ten's MasterChef. When I interviewed her in 2010, she could see that media was in flux, but not the outcome. The way I see media at the moment, there are a whole heap of balls in the air and individual journalists are finding it hard to find a place because there's so much chaos. The balls are floating up there and nobody knows where they're going to land. We need to be willing and able when the balls do land. During that interview, she dropped a hint about what was coming next. There's a book that's in the pipeline, she revealed. It's non-fiction. It's certainly not the Australian Eat, Pray, Love. Instead, it was to be a whole new phenomenon. I Quit Sugar became a book and a website 
and then a movement. At its peak, the I Quit Sugar business employed more than 20 people and claimed to have more than 2 million followers around the world sign up for its healthy eating program. The project put Wilson at the head of the fast-developing online wellness movement. When the time for a change came, Wilson made an unusual move. Rather than sell the profitable business to the highest bidder, she closed it. Making the announcement in 2018, she wrote, Once we arrived at the point where scale, growing the existing structure exponentially, was required, I realised the motivator now was money. My motivator had not been money previously, a freedom that enabled me to make bold decisions that at times startled peers in the industry, but ultimately, and ironically, saw my message and product spread further. So I decided a little over 12 months ago that it was time for me to go. I'm an educator, a communicator, not a money spinner. It was best for everyone and for the message. Not everybody will be as successful in the female-focused space. Journalist and broadcaster Wendy Harmer launched The Hoopla in partnership with former magazine journalist Jane Waterhouse in 2011 with the opening message, I believe that the views and concerns of mature Australian women are increasingly overlooked in a landscape of celebrity youth and sensation. In what many have termed a race to the bottom, where can we see ourselves? The hoopla cycled through business models. It started with advertising before asking for voluntary reader donations. And in April 2014, it moved to a paywall, which included a day pass for 99 cents and a $75 annual subscription. In March 2015, Waterhouse and Harmer closed the hoopla, recognising that they'd been unable to make it pay. We're all pretty aware of how tight the market is and how little money there is around for digital advertising. That money is going to be very much fought over, said Harmer at the time. Rise of the Robots The development that changed the economics of online publishing, eventually for the worse, as far as publishers were concerned, was the rise of programmatic advertising. Programmatic had its roots early in the growth of the internet. Initially, publishers could host ads on their own sites, but it was complicated and costly, particularly as the ads themselves grew in file size and advertisers wanted more sophistication. Having the ability to show different ads to different members of the audience, perhaps based on their location or the time of day, required an ad server. DoubleClick was the first ad server to reach scale. Google had bought DoubleClick for $3.1 billion in 2007. On the other side of the equation, ad networks had sprung up. These were companies that did deals with online publishers to feed ads onto their sites. It meant the advertiser placed its ads with the ad network rather than the publisher, and the ads would appear across the network. For advertisers, it made it easier to achieve wider reach for a campaign. The ad network got to clip the ticket. The game was becoming murkier as not all ad networks were ethical. Advertisers could not be sure what sort of material their ads were appearing next to, and publishers weren't sure whether they were getting a fair slice. Spammy sites designed to drag in an audience click before they bounced away became a part of the ecosystem. The established currency became CPMs, or cost per meal, thousand. 
In other words, the price of running a display ad was based on each thousand times it was shown. So a CPM of $10 would mean that the charge would be 10 bucks for every thousand times the ad was served or one cent per view. And cookies became an essential part of the system. Those small pieces of data were stored on a user's browser and kept track of what they'd been up to. Somebody who'd been browsing car websites, for instance, was probably in the market to buy a car and a great target for an automotive advertiser. Programmatic sprang up when the process became automated. Every time a web user clicked on a page, an algorithmic auction would take place in a fraction of a second, in which brands made their best offer to serve an ad to that user based on the available information. At one end of the chain was the advertiser's ad server, where the brand, or often its media agency, would manage its digital advertising campaigns. This would then feed into demand-side platforms, which would automate how advertisers bid to run their ads based on who they wanted to target and the CPM they are offering to pay. On the other side of the equation, the supply-side platforms would run the auctions on behalf of the publishers, and they in turn would feed into the publishers' ad servers, which would organise and make available the advertising inventory on the website. Google would gradually take a dominant position in owning the technology driving each of the four steps, buying almost any tech firm that began to make a mark in the space. An early consequence of programmatic was that supply began to outstrip demand. There were more ad slots available than there were brands to fill them, so the typical CPM began to plummet from $100 to $50 to little more than a dollar. It meant that the only publishers who could thrive with an advertising model in a programmatic world needed to either generate huge amounts of traffic or be in a specialist niche where the audience was more attractive to advertisers willing to pay a higher CPM. The situation got even worse as users shifted to mobile where ad rates were even lower. And although programmatic CPMs kept falling, The system was attractive enough for publishers who saw it as a way of saving on the cost of salespeople. As mobile began to take off and overtake desktop as the place where most content was being read, the disciplines changed again. Particularly for the daily news publishers, time of day became a key consideration for the type of content being consumed. A reader killing time on their phone on the bus to work would behave differently from when they were looking at a news site on their office desktop at lunchtime and different again when they were at home on a tablet in the evening. In 2015, Google's search results started deprioritizing websites that failed to offer a mobile-friendly version. Exits Among the first companies that jumped into mobile-first publishing was youth publisher Junkie Media. In May 2017, it launched the Generation Z-focused sister site to Junkie, Punky. It will be social-led and mobile-first. And the owners of Junkie Media were one of the first of the new wave of digital publishers to cash in their chips. The company had started life as music publisher Sound Alliance in 2000 with dance music site In The Mix. Youth culture site Junkie had followed in 2013. Junkie Media's model was advertising-led, but as the price of online display advertising fell, Junkie had pivoted towards native content. 
The model featured content paid for by advertisers but created by its journalists in Junkie's style. A second factor that made Junkie Media stand out in the media market was the way it positioned itself as an authority on its youth audience. The company began to present an annual snapshot to the advertising market of what was going on in the youth demographic based on a survey of its audience. The expertise in native advertising and knowledge of the youth market living in the heads of CEO Neil Ackland and publisher Tim Duggan saw Junkie Media sold in June 2016 for a valuation of $13 million. The buyer was out-of-home company O-Media, which was looking to diversify beyond outdoor advertising. Junkie's biggest competitor, Pedestrian, sold in March 2015. Nine bought a 60% stake for $9.3 million, suggesting a valuation of $15.5 million. Impressively, when it bought the other 40% in August 2018, Nine paid $39.3 million, implying that founders Chris Wirasina and Oscar Martin had created a brand worth almost $100 million, making it arguably the most valuable local media brand of their generation. Not long after that, there was a third impressive local exit. After Junkie and Pedestrian had gone, the only similar local digital publisher on the market was Conversant Media, which published websites including sports site The Raw, culture site Lost at E Minor, and technology site Techly. Founded by brothers Zach and Zoltan Zavos, Conversant was perhaps a case of the last house left for sale on the street. APN News and Media snapped up Conversant for $11.6 million in October 2016. It was not a particularly successful acquisition. Within two years, both of the Zavos brothers had moved on and Techly and Lost at E Minor had been closed. Publish or Perish There are also new ways of funding publishing ventures beyond advertising. Among the most inventive models was that of The Conversation, the brainchild of former Age editor-in-chief, Andrew Jaspin. Jaspin had left Fairfax Media in the same 2008 cull as Anthony Catalano. He combined his publishing experience with his impressive networking abilities and persuasive sales skills to create a unique proposition, thoughtful articles written by academics and edited by journalists. With the help of Melbourne University Vice-Chancellor Glyn Davis, Jaspin persuaded a series of public institutions to provide funding for the conversation, which was set up on a not-for-profit basis. His sales pitch to the universities was a simple one. The conversation would help their academics find a bigger audience, and his dozen editors would make sure their copy was intelligible to the general public. With the constant pressure of publish or perish as a refrain throughout an academic career, it was an alluring pitch. An impressive list of organisations provided a combined $10 million in funding for the 2011 launch. ANU, CSIRO, Monash University, the University of Melbourne, University of Technology Sydney and the University of Western Australia all came on board with $1 million each. Deputy Prime Minister Julie Gillard, who had education as part of her portfolio, and the Victorian Government also supported the conversation. Commonwealth Bank came on board as a sponsor. There was another smart element to the conversation. Every article was published under a Creative Commons licence. 
This meant any website could republish any article from the conversation, so long as it was clearly attributed. The site even provided a piece of code that could be cut and pasted in to make the republishing easier. And the code included a widget to measure the traffic the article was getting, so academics knew exactly how widely their work was being seen. The publication quickly began to pump out dozens of articles per month. It was also able to offer quality political analysis after the ages Michel Grattan took the title of Professorial Fellow at the University of Canberra, which qualified her as an academic to become the conversation's chief political correspondent. A year into the conversation, I invited Jaspin to write a piece for Mumbrella, telling his story. I wanted to find a way to address the so-called media crisis, which has seen newspapers close, shrink and shallow out their offerings. Instead of being another ex-editor moaning about the problem, I wanted to seek solutions, he wrote. The model was so strong, it was taken up around the world. Jaspin spearheaded local versions of the conversation in the UK, US, Africa, France, Canada, Indonesia and Spain. However, there were also tensions between Jaspin and some members of his team. He was a demanding figure. His tenure came to an end in 2017 in acrimonious circumstances. He went on enforced leave after senior staff complained to the board about his management style before he chose to walk away and take on a new post as director of the Global Academy and Professorial Fellowship at RMIT. It was an unsatisfying end for the architect of one of the great new funding models for journalism. Another inventive new way of paying for journalism, which came out of Melbourne, was the New Daily. It was Bruce Guthrie's first major project after his successful legal case against News Limited over his departure from the Herald Sun. Launching in November 2013 with an initial staff of 15 and licensing news video from the ABC, the New Daily was jointly owned by some of Australia's major superannuation funds, Australian Super, CBUS and Industry Super Holdings. The motivation for the super funds to support the New Daily were twofold. In part, it was to make a contribution to members and the public's financial literacy through the site's finance coverage, but it was also to burnish the general brand of industry super funds compared to their for-profit banking counterparts in what was becoming an increasingly political debate. Although advertising supported, the super funds were content to cover the gap if the New Daily failed to turn a profit. As well as Guthrie, private media's Eric Beecher was a co-founder and also on the board. The New Daily was to be yet another challenger to News Corp and Fairfax titles, attempting to persuade readers to subscribe for paywalled content. Ahead of the launch, Guthrie said... What we have seen in our research is that there's an increasing frustration with these porous paywalls, which lock you out after 15 or 30 articles. Providing good quality journalism for free, and the super funds have made it clear they will never charge for journalism, is a significant selling point for the website. Initially, it sold its ads through a sales house, but the rise of programmatic drove a change. As a sign of the times in Australia, the two companies that had offered sales representation services for smaller digital publishers went out of business. Saleshouse HS3 Media, which had represented publishers like Delimiter, Australian Business Women's Network and Anthill, 
closed in September 2015 and Chairman Shane Mitchell pointed the finger at programmatic buying when shutting up shop. In May 2016, Inception Digital, which had represented sites including The Guardian, The Carousel, Mashable and The New Daily, went into liquidation. Traditional display can be done through programmatic, the New Daily's publisher, Paul Hamra, told Mumbrella at the time. We're better off having an algorithm. Later, ownership of the New Daily transferred directly to Industry Super Holdings, which represented 29 Industry Super Funds. By 2018, the New Daily was finding a respectable audience, averaging more than 2 million unique users per month, putting it among the country's top 20 most visited websites. Celebrating the fifth anniversary, Guthrie pointed out how few new local news launches there had been in Australia, with the space dominated by global arrivals. Even though the barriers to entry in news publishing have come down because of digital, the reality is that few Australian companies have stepped up. There aren't many new Australian-owned media businesses having a go. Because of the Superfund support, the New Daily's funding model would be criticised by its opponents, including the banks and the wider media sector. The 2018 Royal Commission into the Finance Industry examined the arrangement, but raised no issues when it reported back in 2019. In late 2020, it was revealed that the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority planned to look at the New Daily's funding model in 2021. And the New Daily entered 2021 by landing one more punch against its traditional media rivals. Alan Kohler, the Australian's most popular finance columnist since joining the News Corp stable through the sale of his business Spectator in 2012, announced his departure. The New Daily signed him up. The first Facebook apocalypse. Australia saw a rush of big global media brands starting local operations. In November 2013, Nine agreed to a joint venture with Mail Online, the sibling of the British mid-market tabloid newspaper Daily Mail. Mail Online had developed a highly successful formula, relying on a quick turnaround of stories mainly lifted and rewritten from rival publications, as well as its own original reporting. It was also distinguished by its gossipy right-hand showbiz column on its homepage, nicknamed The Sidebar of Shame. It claimed to be the biggest English-language website in the world. On the week of the launch announcement, Mail Online's global editor-in-chief, Martin Clark, came to Mumbrella House for a live video stream. He made it clear that his ethos was not a traditional journalistic one. That is a newspaper obsession, My obsession is entertaining and informing people. That's not to say we will do bland, middle-of-the-road stuff, but our line will be dictated by the individual story. Journalists tend to see things through a political prism. We see things through the prism of, is it interesting? The populist approach would put the publication in direct competition with News Corp's free website, news.com.au as well as the company's Metro tabloid mastheads. Although the local edition took off quickly, soon Mail Online, which later rebranded as Daily Mail Australia, was the fifth most popular site in the country, behind ABC News Online, news.com.au, the Sydney Morning Herald and 9MSN. The joint venture lasted little more than two years. 
the Daily Mail and General Trust pulled the plug on the joint venture, believing that in its advertising sales efforts, Nine was promoting its other properties ahead of Daily Mail Australia. After that, Daily Mail went it alone. There were launches into Australia from the US too. BuzzFeed was the big one. It had the wherewithal to blast its way into the market. By the time it appointed News Corp's visual stories editor, Simon Creerer, as its Australian editor in September 2013, BuzzFeed was already a global giant and it had no short-term need to be profitable thanks to several rounds of venture capital funding, including $3.5 million in 2008, $15.5 million in 2012, and $19.3 million at the start of 2013. And it was gearing up for a massive $50 million injection in 2014 from famed Silicon Valley VC firm Anderson Horowitz. In the announcement of his appointment, Creera summed up the changing landscape and what it meant for publishers. BuzzFeed's unique approach to shaping news in the social age is ideally suited to Australia, a nation with the world's highest rate of Facebook use and a national conversation shaped by Twitter and emerging social media tools. BuzzFeed was three brands in one. Most obviously, it was the closest to nailing the formula of what made something go viral. Listicles, articles based on lists, were a key component. Sometimes that was for lighter material. BuzzFeed was best known as the home of cute cat videos, but also as a way of telling more serious stories. 12 Ways the G20 Has Turned Brisbane Into an Orwellian Wasteland was a local example. It once conducted an interview with Foreign Minister Julie Bishop using emojis, but BuzzFeed was also about long-form and news-breaking journalism, with political features and investigations. Early in its life, it broke the exclusive that former Labour leader Mark Latham was behind a troll account on Twitter. There was perhaps no site in Australia that was better at riding the Facebook algorithm to maximise the sharing of its content. And the third face, next to the fun and serious sides of its journalism, was a commercial side. Despite its massive traffic, some Australian posts drew half a million views, it stayed away from display advertising in favour of native advertising. This was initially sold out of BuzzFeed's New York office, with the creative work generated out of its Los Angeles office. Globally and locally, BuzzFeed continued to grow and to raise more funds as it went. In 2015, NBC Universal invested $200 million. This meant that, unlike its local competitors, who had to stand on their own two feet, BuzzFeed did not, initially at least, need a business model that was actually profitable. Another short-lived overseas entrant into Australia was Huffington Post. The politics and commentary website had been a phenomenon since its launch in the US in 2005 by socialite Ariana Huffington. Part aggregator and part blog, it also benefited from contributors who were willing to write for free in exchange for exposure. Huffington had first flagged launching an Australian edition in 2011. Like Mail Online, when Huffington Post finally came to Australia, it looked for a local partner, settling on Fairfax Media. It was late to the party, beaten by Mail Online, BuzzFeed and The Guardian by the time it launched in August 2015. 
And there was a question mark about whether there was room for a scaled-up comment-based site in Australia. News Corp had experimented with the model from 2009 to 2013 with The Punch. While The Punch had generated a lot of interesting content and turned out several journalists who would go on to play big roles in subsequent launches, including editor Tory Maguire, it had never been profitable. Maguire would go on to be launch editor of HuffPost Australia. Similarly, Fairfax Media had briefly revived its National Times brand as an online discussion website in 2009 as a counter to the punch, but also failed to make a go of it. Nonetheless, local HuffPost content began to show up on social media feeds and seemed to be finding a place even if it was not delivering significantly more traffic than when it was just a US site. But one of the downsides of being an outpost is that when something goes awry in head office, Australia is a long way away. This happened to music streaming service Pandora Radio in 2017, when its US bosses suddenly pulled the plug on the Australian office. And it was the case for HuffPost, which was going through upheavals back in New York. Huffington had sold the site to AOL in 2011, and in 2015, Telco Verizon bought AOL. Then Verizon bought Yahoo too, and merged the media assets of the two to form Oath. Soon after, there was a global round of redundancies. In 2016, Huffington left the company, and the new management was far more focused on the US operation than international ambitions. In November 2017, Huffington Post and Fairfax announced they were ending their joint venture after just two years, with most of the 30-strong local team being made redundant. No matter how smart the overseas players looked, gravity would even eventually catch those fuelled by venture capital. And life was about to get harder for publishers that were becoming addicted to Facebook traffic. This held a major risk for all the publishers, they were renting somebody else's land. A hard lesson came in January 2018 when Facebook boss Mark Zuckerberg announced a big change to the algorithm. Now Facebook's priority would be meaningful interactions, which was bad news for the media. The first changes you'll see will be in newsfeed, where you can expect to see more from your friends, family and groups, wrote Zuckerberg. As we roll this out, you'll see less public content like posts from businesses, brands and media. And the public content you see more will be held to the same standard. It should encourage meaningful interactions between people. This meant that media companies that wanted to reliably be in the news feed would have to pay for the privilege. There was a noticeable effect for Australian publishers. Bauer Media said it had seen a 40% fall to some of its sites. ABC Online lost about a quarter of its Facebook interactions and News Corp's The Daily Telegraph lost about a third. Seven West Media said the number of views of video on the site had been hit. Youth site Pedestrian said that it saw a 9% decline in traffic from Facebook. This Facebook apocalypse had a drastic effect for most publishers globally, but particularly for BuzzFeed, which had begun to create video content and quizzes intending to live solely on Facebook. Globally and locally, BuzzFeed made rounds of redundancies. In February 2019, Simon Creerer, who by then had become the general manager of BuzzFeed Australia, 
was one of 11 local redundancies. His tweeted announcement followed BuzzFeed's upbeat, no haters, house style. Good day, mates. Some personal news. Like so many talented folks around the world, I have been laid off by BuzzFeed. It has been the most exciting, fun, fulfilling job of my life. I'm sad, but also very thankful. Over the next two years, social posts from journalists working in all parts of the media, beginning with the phrase, some personal news, would become all too common. In May 2020, the axe fell on the rest of BuzzFeed's Australian news team. For economic and strategy reasons, the company said it will be focusing only on news that hits big in the US. Shortly after Creera's departure, I was in London covering the Advertising Week Europe conference. On stage was David Pemsel, CEO of The Guardian, which had been forced to make its own rounds of cuts, 20% of its workforce globally, but was now out of danger, he told the event. And he had a theory on why BuzzFeed was struggling so much. A lot of companies that have faced problems in the last six months perhaps started to believe their own hype. Some of their valuations were billions and billions of pounds. Perhaps a team who had strived hard from startup to something of scale might get complacent at that point. There still remains a huge amount of disruption. It shows this Nirvana view that one company can solve everything. BuzzFeed at one point was considered to be the darling of reality. When there's an algorithmic change from Facebook and suddenly you ask, well, will that work? A utopian indulgence. Another new model for journalism was philanthropy. It was the ultimate journalist fantasy. Imagine a world without advertising departments and without marketing departments, where commercial success doesn't matter and deadlines don't exist, so journos can file whenever they like. For a while, this utopian experiment played out in Australia. The Global Mail was one of Australia's biggest exercises in philanthropically funded journalism. It proved to be a lesson that independent journalism is one thing, but undisciplined, indulgent journalism is another. It could have been so different. Based in Sydney, the Global Mail launched in February 2012 as one of the world's best-funded independent journalism projects. It was the idea of ABC journalist Monica Attard, an ABC staffer for more than 20 years. She had won five Walkley Awards, but had not worked in newspapers or online publishing and had not been in management positions before either. Nonetheless, she persuaded philanthropist Graham Wood, the founder of travel website What If, to put up more than $3 million a year to deliver her vision of an agendaless, thoughtful, global analysis website. The staff of about 20 included journalists, a director of photography, two web producers and a media manager. A few days after launch, we interviewed Attard from Umbrella's podcast. She made it clear there would be nothing populist about the site and normal online publishing conventions would not apply. We are aiming at giving people a reprieve from the daily, hard-driven dross of coverage of national and international affairs, she told us. So how would deadlines work in that environment, I asked. We are certainly not tied to the 24-7 mayhem of a news cycle. We are poised very, very, very strongly to escape that. 
We're not interested in the 24-7 news cycle. We go away, we think a little bit more about what is happening within that cycle, and we write about it. Journalists would not have to work to deadlines. This was an unusual approach. Many journalists do their best work only when a deadline is looming. My colleague Martin Lane, who ran the business side of Mumbrella, joined the podcast conversation. Presumably, it's not a bottomless pit, so at some stage that horrible word, you're going to have to monetize the site. What's the strategy? Attard's voice took on a tone that suggested Martin had put forward a foolish proposition. We don't have to monetize the site. We have no intention of monetizing the site. So it is a bottomless pit, quipped Martin. No, it's not a bottomless pit, but we have no... The site will remain free. We may well develop an app. And there may be some revenue streams that we can create around the app, but the site will remain free. So Graham Wood has backed you for the first five years, I clarified. The first five years and no indication that the tap gets turned off then, Attard replied. The expectation is that in those five years, we will find ways to create revenue streams that may help us to be self-supporting. Could one of those revenue streams be financial support from the readers, I asked? Not as donations, but there might be other methods that might revolve around the app. But to be absolutely honest, hand on heart, we haven't thought about it yet. It turned out they hadn't given much thought to who the audience might be either. Do you have a picture of a typical reader in mind yet? asked Martin. In publishing, journalists are taught to write with a typical reader in their mind's eye. Martin received another frosty reply. No. In fact, I really want to stay away from being able to pigeonhole our readers. I'd like to think we've got something for everybody. The unstoppable force of something for everybody would soon smash into the immovable object of allowing journalists to file whenever they wanted. In the weeks that followed, despite having 20 staff, including correspondents based around the world, hardly anything appeared on the site. The Global Mail was averaging less than one new article published per day. In a digital publishing environment where traffic correlated with the quantity of content produced, the Global Mail was struggling to get noticed. It also became clear that as well as not giving any thought to how the site might one day be monetized, Attard had not given any priority to how it might be found by new readers. The social media strategy consisted simply of posting a link to Facebook and Twitter on the rare occasions when there was a new article. And although readers could sign up for an email that would have reminded them when there was new content, there was little effort to promote it. There was also no noticeable marketing effort to advertise the site to new readers. Like the quixotic policy of no filing deadlines for the journalists, the site had an unusual design too. Rather than scrolling up and down, it scrolled from side to side. This left it unusable on smartphones and on some web browsers. Attar did not last long. Three months on from the launch, she was out of the door. Crikey reported that she had fallen out with CEO Jane Nichols, a former editor of Time Inc.'s local edition of Who magazine, and before that, deputy editor of Fairfax's Good Weekend Saturday magazine. The announcement was terse. The Global Mail announced today that Monica Attard, having served as founding managing editor for the conception and launch phase of the Global Mail, will be leaving the publication. 
The Global Mail chairman, Graham Wood, thanked Monica for her tremendous assistance and vision in the startup phase of the organisation's development. CEO of the Global Mail, Jane Nichols, will step in as interim editor. Former Sydney Morning Herald journalist Lauren Martin was brought in a month later as the new editor. Later that year, the site relaunched with a more conventional design, including ditching the horizontal scroll. And a few weeks later, the Global Mail made its four overseas correspondents redundant as it began to cut costs. The Global Mail limped on during 2013, but never broke through. It eventually built its email list to 17,000 subscribers and attracted about 120,000 unique users per month, a disappointingly small number relative to its editorial resource. And there will be no five years of financial support after all. In January 2014, almost two years into its supposed five, Wood pulled the funding, with the site closing a few weeks later, with 21 staff being made redundant. When the axe finally fell on the Global Mail, it was not a big surprise. Wood had already found his next philanthropic journalism project, to underwrite a local edition of The Guardian. The Guardian had its roots in the Manchester Guardian in the UK, which dropped the Manchester in 1959 and moved to London in 1964. It was not revealed at the time, but Malcolm Turnbull too had a hand in the project. He would later reveal in his autobiography, A Bigger Picture, that he had suggested to The Guardian's editor, Alan Rusbridger, that there might be a place for a digital version of the paper in Australia. I was beginning to despair about the state of Australian journalism. I wasn't particularly concerned about the political slant of one outlet or another, but more about the fact that newsrooms were shrinking and editorial standards were dropping to the loopy standards of the Twitter sphere, he wrote. The idea made sense. The left-leaning Guardian had already launched a US edition. According to Turnbull, Rusbridger estimated Guardian Australia would need to be underwritten for three years, to the tune of $20 million. Turnbull thought of Graham Wood. He'd already recently funded a progressive free online newspaper called The Global Mail. It wasn't going to make it. So I suggested to Graham he drop The Global Mail and instead use his fortune to bankroll an Australian edition of The Guardian. Russ Bridger would later write of Wood in his own memoir, Breaking News. He was willing to underwrite for the first few years. If we turned Guardian Australia into a going concern, we'd pay him back. If not, he was happy to write the investment off. To ensure the publication carried the DNA of its London parent, the Guardian's deputy editor, Catherine Viner, was dispatched from the UK as launch editor. And there had never been a better time to be hiring journalistic talent, with the Fairfax exodus in full flood. Fairfax refugees included political commentator David Marr, who had taken redundancy and had been planning on retirement, and two big poachings, the Sydney Morning Herald's Lenore Taylor and the ages Catherine Murphy, who had already been talking to each other about starting a new online political publication. The trio gave The Guardian Australia instant political credibility. A month after the May 2013 launch, I interviewed Viner for a live video stream from Umbrella's office. I asked her where she saw The Guardian's place in the Australian media landscape. We're independent, she replied. There are no shareholders, 
there are no proprietors. We're digital only, so we don't have to worry about doing something for the paper, which is a real liberation. Plus, we can be very Australian, but very much in the world because of our international offices. Within a year, the Sydney-based publication had 50 staff and was opening a second office in Melbourne. Viner left in March 2014 to take charge of The Guardian's US operation. And in June 2015, back in the UK, she became the first female editor-in-chief in The Guardian's two-century history. The Guardian also proved to be a better bet for Wood than the Global Mail. Once the publication found its feet, he did indeed get his money back. After Graham Wood came another billionaire media philanthropist. In November 2018, Judith Nielsen pledged $100 million to establish the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas to support journalism around the world. The chairman will be former ABC chair James Spiegelman, with former journalist Mark Ryan running the organisation. The first grants from the Institute were announced in July 2019. The ABC was awarded a grant to fund a media literacy programme across remote communities in Western Australia and the Northern Territory. The Australian Financial Review received financial help to reopen its Jakarta Bureau. A grant also went to the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age to employ an Indigenous journalist and an Indigenous trainee photographer. The Guardian was given funding to hire a Pacific editor. News Corp was given a grant to write a series examining China's transformation. And Schwartz Media received a grant to fund a new producer for its 7am podcast. In April 2020, the Institute followed up with an emergency grant for freelancers whose work had fallen away due to the Covid crisis. It was another sign of just how much things had changed. A decade before, the likes of News Corp or Fairfax Media accepting subsidies from philanthropists would have been unthinkable. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.